We appreciate the presence of everyone tonight, as has been mentioned by Tommy and his announcements, and we certainly want you to come back at every opportunity that you have. If you're visiting with us, good to have Adam and Laura back with us uh, today. Of course, they had to be here. We're in a counseling session uh, to, uh, this week and next week. No, they, uh, they wanted to be here. This is a fine young Christian couple. I've spent uh, time with them this afternoon, and as we prepare for their uh, wedding on June the 30th and some premarital counseling, and um, they're just a fine Christian couple, and it's so encouraging uh, to uh, see young people who love the Lord as these people do, these young people, and who are dedicating their marriage uh, to the foundation that it uh, needs to be dedicated to, and that is building it upon Christ. I appreciate both of them uh, so very, very much. Incidentally, I might mention that if uh, one of you, I don't know if we have any notary publics in here, but if you do, uh, next Sunday night, if you bring your seal, uh, we could use you. We're not going to marry them then, but, uh, <laughs> but we are going to, uh, we are going to seal. Wayman, you notary? Okay. We are going to seal the uh, affidavit about the counseling that helps them uh, on their uh, obtaining of the marriage license there and saves them a little money on that, but uh, it's good to have counseling anyway, and uh, it's good for me because I'm greatly encouraged when I get to talk to people like this, uh, uh, as I said. But um, uh, we would appreciate uh, your assistance in that regard, and we'll, uh, we'll look forward to, uh, to that. Tonight we are concluding our study of James, the gospel of common sense. It has often been... Uh, called And with tonight's study, we bring to a close this uh, study of this great epistle. And I certainly hope that this study has uh, meant as much to you as it has to me. It is an epistle that truly is a great epistle filled with great teaching uh, that all would do well to reflect upon, of course, and to uh, apply in our daily lives. So much practical teaching that would lead us to perfection or to completion, to maturity in Christ. And obviously that is what we are to be about as Christians regardless of where we are in our Christian walk, whether we uh, have been Christians for many years or we're babes in Christ, we are nonetheless to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that growth process is not something that, that ends uh, at a certain age. That growth process ends when the Lord comes again or when we die, whichever comes first, because we are to apply ourselves to that growth. We have sung a beautiful song prior to our prayer tonight, reminding us of how important it is to pray and how precious the privilege of prayer is in the life of the child of God. And certainly the New Testament Christians in the New Testament period when the New Testament was still being written had a tremendous appreciation for praying with one another and for praying for one another. And we know how much prayer meant to the Apostle Paul. He coveted the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ and, and repeatedly talked about how he prayed for them. And we know the fervency with which he prayed. But James has had something to write uh, concerning prayer and the importance of prayer and the importance of, of going to God in prayer and asking God uh, in faith without doubting, taking us all the way back to the beginning of this epistle 
where he reminds us that we're to ask in faith with no doubting as we go to God in prayer, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. And now in these final verses of chapter 5, as he closes his epistle, he continues the emphasis upon prayer. Remember last time that we studied the, the uh, prayer of faith in verse 15. The prayer of faith uh, being attributable to the one who is doing the praying. Praying for the sick and the Lord raising him up and if he has committed sins he will be forgiven. Of course clearly implying that the sin would be repented of before the forgiveness would be forthcoming. But we talked about that prayer of faith in the miraculous context in which uh, this passage was written. There were elders in the church in those days who were um, men with miraculous gifts. The ability to to heal as the miraculous gifts were necessary in the early uh, stages of the church, in the infancy of the church, before we came to that perfect and complete stage where the Word of God was in its final uh, depository in the New Testament. Now, obviously, we no longer need those miraculous gifts, but we have been reading in our past study about a time when those gifts were still in effect, and the prayer of faith is assured to save the sick on certain occasions and the Lord would raise that person up and also the forgiveness of sins would be involved. Now, we look back a little bit to look forward in these final verses, 16 through 20 of the epistle, because the connection is clearly there between verse 16 and verse 15, where James now writes, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And again, that reminds us of the importance of, of prayer. And here, we are called upon to readily confess our sins so that we might uh, enjoy the privilege of having others pray with us and for us. Confess your trespasses or your sins to one another. As we said, that phrase is logically associated with the preceding section. He said if the one has committed sins, that is the sick one, back in um, verse 15, they shall be forgiven. But the Lord obviously forgives those who confess their sins and repent of their sins. Therefore, confession is obviously understood to be involved here. Literally, this phrase, confess your trespasses, is in a tense that indicates keep on confessing your trespasses to one another and keep on praying for one another. It's interesting that, that Catholics use this particular statement here to support something that uh, they call auricular confession, that is confession to a priest. But it's interesting here, isn't it? Confess your trespasses to one another if this is a basis for auricular confession or confession to a priest, then it would obviously teach that if one is to confess to the priest, then it would teach that the priest must immediately turn around and confess his sins to the confessee because it is confess your sins to one another. Not a one-way street, in other words, but confess your sins or your trespasses to one another. Obviously, there is no credence here for the practice of, of auricular confession. But what is taught here is the obligation, the simple obligation of all Christians both to confess their sins to each other and to pray 
for each other. Now there's nothing in the word itself here that would indicate whether public or, or private confession is under consideration, but the context indicates since the confession is to be to one another. And so it means by implication the confession is to be as public as the sin is. I would not be required to confess a private sin before the, the congregation, nor would you be required or expected in Scripture, anything we could find in Scripture, nothing we would find in Scripture would, uh, would bind that kind of confession upon us. Uh, obviously, our private sins are to be confessed to God. But what about the sins that are known by others? Well, they should be confessed, repented of and confessed as widely known as the sin itself. We're to pray for one another, but we may effectively do so only when a brother confesses his sins and when he turns away from them. Remember the Lord said in Luke 17, 3, if your brother sins against you, that is, you know of it, obviously, if your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Well, if he repents would involve what? Confession, obviously. Confessing to you, I repent. How are you going to know he's repented unless he tells you he has? Obviously, confession is a part of that repentance process. And so, the very nature of the case indicates it's necessary that those who have known of the sins that have been committed should also know of the penitence on the part of the sinner. But this can only be known through what? Confession. Through confession of the brother or sister involved in the sin. And so what we learn from this clearly is that it's a practical rule that the confession should be as public as the sin. It should be noted that this passage is not limited to instances when one commits a grievous sin against God and confesses to him in this instance, the confession is what? To one another. So he obviously is not, uh, uh, is not uh, talking about the private sin here because this sin is to be confessed to one another. And so this passage doesn't deal completely and strictly with a formal confession that's made by the one who's committed public sin and is making confession before the church for that sin, but it certainly would include that. But what we do have is a daily obligation, and it has application to all of us that we confess our trespasses to one another. If we've sinned against someone, we're willing to confess that sin, we're willing to repent of that sin, and that we obviously and regularly pray for one another. He says, pray for one another that you may be healed. And here, of course, the purpose of the prayer is specifically for the bestowal of the blessing from God in the matter of forgiveness. And, of course, here in this context, the matter of healing because we're dealing with those who were sick and were being prayed for by those who were miraculously endowed, praying that prayer of faith, faith on their part in their gifts to heal and the healing that came as a result of that. But obviously only those who were willing to confess their sins in this context were those who could expect the blessing of forgiveness because to fail to repent and confess places a barrier between the sinner and God. And he says and reminds us here of something that we need never forget, the effective fervent prayer 
of a righteous man avails much. How much confidence do we have in the power of prayer? We should have the greatest confidence in it because James reminds us of that confidence we should have when he writes these words by inspiration that the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. A righteous man, who is he? Well, he's simply one that does right. He's the one who keeps the Lord's commandments. Remember Proverbs 28, 9 says, He who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. God does not promise to hear the prayer of the one who's turned away his ear from hearing the law, that is, from doing his will. But for those who are righteous, those who are doing his will, that prayer of that man avails much. The power of prayer is emphasized here when it's prayed by one who is spiritually qualified, so to speak, to offer that prayer. And who are those who are spiritually qualified? Those who are keeping the commandments of the Lord. And to those people, God promises to answer their prayers. And as we have noted in studying prayer in the past, sometimes the answer may be, wait a while. Sometimes the answer may be yes. Sometimes the answer may be something different than that for which we ask that is better for us. And sometimes the answer may be no, based upon the fact that God knows all and we are limited in our finite knowledge. But notice now in verse 17, he cites an example of a man just like you, just like me in so many ways. Oh yes, he was a prophet of God. He was one who could prophesy by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he was a man nonetheless. And that's what James reminds us of in connection with this subject of prayer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. In other words, he was subject to all the frailties and shortcomings and sorrows and challenges and difficulties of this life just like we are. He was a man with a nature like ours. And he did what? He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, verse 18, and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. What's James telling us here? Why is he bringing up Elijah? Because he was a man like we are. And his activities, the activities of this great man of God are found in, in 1 Kings. But he was a man with a nature like ours. Or the King James says he was a man with, uh, with like passions with us. The stress here is on the fact that he was a human being just like we are. And yet look what he accomplished through the power of prayer and through the faith that he had in prayer. He prayed fervently, earnestly, that it would not rain. Now it's interesting that when you look at this incident in the Old Testament that it is not specifically stated that he prayed, though it is implied there, but James says he did. So I don't have to see an explicit statement in 1 Kings that he did. If James said he did, then he did. And the phrase that it rained not on the earth for 
three years and six months is likely limited to Israel because the phrase the earth is often used as a synonym for the land of Israel. But look at verse 18. He prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 18, you can see that this is a likely reference to uh, these verses in 1 Kings chapter 18, specifically uh, verse 42. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. Then he bowed down on the ground and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up, now look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And seven times he said, Go again. Then it came to pass the seventh time that he said, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand rising out of the sea. So he said, Go up. Say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Well, there's just a little cloud here now. And he's saying, tell Ahab, get down from this mountain before you get flooded out and you can't get down this mountain because the rain is on its way. And now it happened, verse 45, in the meantime, that the sky became black with clouds and wind and there was a heavy rain. As James refers to Elijah, he no doubt refers to these verses here. Though again, it's not stated there, is it, in so many words that Elijah prayed. But he put his head down between his knees. I don't think that was in shame. I would strongly suggest that he was praying at that time, wouldn't you? And James says that he was. But James cites the incident to show us the power of prayer and reminds us that, that if one of like passions with us, with the very nature as we have, if he could accomplish so much in prayer, then we should, deny, we should not deny the power of prayer today. The lesson is this. Elijah was a mere man. God answered his prayer. He will therefore answer your prayer as well. And don't you forget it, James, in effect, says. We need to believe in the power of prayer. Now in verse 19, James says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, verse 20, let him know that he who turns the sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. What a great thought with which to end this epistle. The thought of the joy of bringing someone to Christ or bringing someone back to Christ who has wandered from the truth. And this statement here in verse 19, verse 20, it follows logically from the statement that a brother may sin, a brother may wander from the truth, and this statement indicates very clearly that we need to be about the business of trying to lead them back to that truth when they do wander from it. But incidentally here, a statement, this statement that he makes here in the final verses is a rebuke. It's a rebuke to all who would minimize the importance of doctrine. To all those who would tell us that truth is fluid, that truth is not absolute, that doctrine doesn't really matter that much, that there is no specific pattern in the New Testament 
to which we must adhere if we're going to be pleasing to God, it is a strong rebuke to all those who think as we have just outlined, those who would minimize doctrine. Why do men sin and fall? Because they wander from the what? The truth. Not because they wander into insincerity from their sincerity and that sincerity is all that matters and truth is not important. He doesn't say, brethren, if anyone wanders from his sincerity about whatever he's doing, no, it's whoever wanders from what? The truth. The truth. What is the only really effective way to keep one from falling? It is by inducing them to accept and to abide by the truth. To stay with the book. A man's life is truly a reflection of his character and his character is a mirror of what he believes. And it does make a difference what one believes. If a man believes that his ancestral tree contained apes, then give him enough time and he'll live like an ape. And he'll behave like an ape. But if a man is impressed with the fact that he has the stamp of divinity on him because he's created in the image of Almighty God, then he'll strive to reach up to God. And in light of what the Bible so plainly and abundantly teaches, it is truly amazing that men who claim to believe the Bible would still insist that it is impossible for a child of God to sin and to fall away so as to be finally lost in hell. And we've talked about it many times. And in fact, uh, Brother Preston, when he was teaching 1 John, shared with us a statement from a denominational preacher, a Mr. Morris, I believe Sam is his first name in it, Preston, I believe. Sam Morris, who under the title, Do a Christian Sins Damn His Soul, wrote this, and you may remember these words. Quote, we take the position that a Christian's sins do not damn his soul. The way a Christian lives, what he says, his character, his conduct, or his attitude toward other people have nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. All the prayers a man may pray, all the Bibles he may read, all the churches he may belong to, all the services he may attend, all the sermons he may practice, all the debts he may pay, all the ordinances he may observe, all the laws he may keep, all the benevolent acts he may perform will not make his soul one whit safer. And all the sins he, he may commit from idolatry to murder will not make his soul in any more danger. The way a man lives has nothing whatever to do with the salvation of his soul. End quote. Unbelievable. That doctrine, totally foreign to both reason and revelation, is refuted not once but literally hundreds of times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let me just give you one scripture from each. 1 Chronicles 28.9, during David's last days on earth, he called his son Solomon to him, and he charged him thusly. 
And thou, Solomon, my son, know thou the God of thy father, and serve him with a perfect heart and a willing mind. For Jehovah searcheth all hearts and understandeth all the imaginations of the thoughts. If thou seek him, he will be found of thee, but if thou forsake him, he will cast thee off forever. That's pretty clear, isn't it? You seek him, he'll be found of you. You forsake him, he'll cast you off forever. And what about Paul's statement in Galatians 5? Behold, I, Paul, say to you, if you receive circumcision, Christ will profit you nothing. Yes, I testify again to every man that receives circumcision that he's a debtor to do the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, that is the law of Moses, you are fallen from grace. Fallen from grace. And hundreds more passages could be cited. The scriptures not only assert the possibility of apostasy, they cite us numerous instances of it as well. Second Timothy two, sixteen through eighteen. Paul's advice to Timothy by inspiration was shun profane babblings, for they will proceed further in ungodliness, and their word will eat as doth a gangrene. And then he mentions of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. They overthrow the faith of some by their false teaching. How can your faith be overthrown if you can't be lost after being saved? If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, James should never have written those words if the impossibility of apostasy is true because no one could ever wander from the truth. No one would ever need to be turned back because no one would ever have strayed to begin with. And yet, obviously, James knew otherwise. And so he concludes in verse 20. Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Let him know. That him is the one in verse 19 who brings the sinner back. Let him know. That is the one who does that great work. Let him know that in turning that sinner from the error of his way, he's saving a soul from death. What kind of death? Not physical death. We're all going to die unless the Lord comes first. He's talking about spiritual death. Separation from God. Therefore, to save a soul from death is to enable such a one to escape eternal separation from God and from all that is good. Could you be involved in anything more significant than that kind of effort? And notice, and shall cover a multitude of of sins. To cover is to hide it, to put it out of sight. In other words, it means to forgive it. All those sins are gone. When that man truly comes home to God through repentance, confession of that sin, those sins are gone. Those sins are gone. And what's emphasized right here for all of us is an obligation that is found many times in the scripture. We neither live to ourselves nor do we die to ourselves. And we have a tremendous responsibility to those around us, whether they are saints or sinners, to help them get to heaven. 
And Daniel in Daniel 12, 3 wrote, And they that are wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. What a glorious work it is to influence precious souls to come to God through Christ or to come home to God as they come back to Christ as wayward children. Listen to what the writer of Proverbs says about it in Proverbs 11.30. The fruit of the righteous is as a tree of life, and he that is wise winneth souls. If you're wise, you will be a soul winner. And how tragic it would be in the judgment if some friend should say, I lived with you in the other world. I was with you for years, and although you helped me in many material things, you never showed an interest in my soul. You never, never tried to turn me to the Lord. In fact, you never mentioned him to me. Someone has well said, I think I should mourn or my sorrowful fate, if sorrow in heaven can be, if no one should be at the beautiful gate. They're watching and waiting for me. We need to endeavor to win souls and to win back souls that if they precede us in death can be at that beautiful gate, as it were, watching and waiting for us to say thank you for taking that interest in my soul. And so ends the epistle of James. A great book. He doesn't end it with any formal conclusion, but he ends it as he began it with an appeal to brethren. Verse 19. And my brethren, chapter 1, verse 2. And here is the peak of Christian service, as we have seen it in this great epistle. The way to genuine greatness where love finds its fullest, richest realization in saving our own souls and doing all that we can to save others. Have you saved your soul? Have you responded to the greatest gift that has ever been offered to mankind, the gift of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? The only way to respond to it properly is by an obedient faith that responds to the amazing, marvelous, matchless grace of God through a belief that moves to repentance, to confession of the sweet name of Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and then a burial with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. If you have not done those things, we plead with you to do that so that you can be among those who are seeking the souls of others to do what you have done that they may be at that beautiful gate, as it were, watching and waiting for you and thanking you for taking an interest in them. You can't reach others until you reach yourself, as it were, through your recognition that someone is reaching out for you through his word, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, as you respond to that word and answer the call of the gospel. If you need to come home as one who has wandered from the truth, and confess sin that is public in nature. We plead with you to do that, to be restored to your first love as we stand to sing, to encourage.